The reading this morning comes from Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to the Lord, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with, you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray for the, the message today, this morning. God, we pray that you would meet us this morning. God, we thank you that you are so faithful to give us, Lord, your word, and to give us faithful people like Matt who uh, proclaim your word, and we just pray that your work would be done in our hearts, the renovation of our souls, that we would be changed because we have gazed upon you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning, church. Weren't those preschool kids great? They were awesome. I'm so proud of those kids, and I'm proud of the teachers and the director and the ministry that they are doing here in our community and the way that they share the love and the truth of, of Jesus with these children and, and the way they support and build up their families and encourage them. I'm truly grateful for that. And I know some of you, this is your first time here, and, and I just want to thank you for joining us today. My hope and prayer is that you are encouraged because you joined us today. Uh, my name is Matt Ortiz. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And to bring you up to speed, we are going through a series in the book of Psalms, various passages from the book of Psalms. And here's the thing about this series. The people who wrote the Psalms, several, most of whom were by David, but the, all of the authors, they wear their heart on their sleeve. They are down to earth. They tell you how they are feeling and what they think about injustice. And then they share with you and with us as we read the relief they have in God's deliverance. Today is going to be, to be honest, a little, maybe a little heavy because today we're talking about despair. We're talking about despair. And what is despair? 
An author who survived a Nazi concentration camp, who's also a psychiatrist, described despair as suffering without meaning. Despair can be sparked by a loss that cannot be restored, like a death or divorce. Despair can be sparked by failure that cannot be fixed, like shame or, or bankruptcy. Despair can be sparked by a health problem, whether it be physical or mental, and there's no cure. Despair is hopelessness. And we need to wrestle with this. And I'll tell you what. We need to be as down to earth as possible. And I'm telling you right now, I can't give you tips and tricks with a few Bible verses sprinkled in to make it sound Christian because there's no power in that. I can't just encourage you to think positive because there's no real power in that. My best jokes won't uh, turn your frown upside down permanently because as soon as you walk out of the room, you have to face your despair again. And so we kind of got to get into it, roll our sleeves up and, and uh, deal with this. And it's going to require some, some difficult work, I think. Most of us have experienced despair, Right? Or if you haven't experienced despair, you've experienced one of its lesser brothers like regret or sadness or grief or depression. We've all been there. And we can stuff it or we can stew and wallow in it. We could press on and go through the motions as it sneaks up on us and then shuts us down. Or we could see it coming and it hits you like a head-on collision. Have you been there? Many of you have. Some of you are there, I know, today. If you have not dealt with deep despair yet, it will get you eventually. I'm not trying to be negative. I want to address it because I love you, and I want you to be ready for it when it does hit. A couple of authors, Dan Allender and, and Trimper Longman, wrote The Cry of the Soul. And they contrast ungodly despair, despair with no God, and godly despair. And they say this, ungodly despair refuses to dream, to hope, to move with courage toward what will one day become. It flees to an illusory harbor, meaning imaginative or deceptive, a false harbor, where isolated, it holds on to whatever pleasure comes from the fantasy of non-existence. This is why suicide is often preferred to hope. On the other hand, godly despair is the collapse of self-will, meaning you move from, I have to fix this, it's all up to me, I, I, I have to do it myself, moving from that to dependence on God. Godly despair is a surrender to a reality of becoming what we are powerless to consummate, meaning we can't pull it off, but in which we are granted an opportunity to play a part. Instead of a suicide note, that puts a stop to the loss. Godly despair is a howling prayer that sees no explanation for our pain, but knows something beyond an answer is what we desire. This is heavy. 
As we engage with this, I want to point out three things that I learned from this passage about responding to despair when it hits, because it will. And the first point, if you're taking notes, is this. First and foremost, above all else, you seek the Lord. Now, you may have heard me say that a few times in this series because that's actually become a a theme for this particular series, and there's a reason for that. The psalmist says in verse 2, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Now, what does that mean to seek the Lord? Well, according to Asaph, it means two things, praying and meditating with passion and persistence. That's what he's talking about. We see him pray with passion and persistence when he says in verse 1 and 2, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Sometimes our prayers are quiet and short. But in times of distress, our prayers can be howling prayers. And the psalmist meditates on God with passion and and persistence. In verse 3, when he says, when I remember you, God, I moan. Your translation might say, I groan. And that doesn't mean, he's not like, oh yeah, I forgot there is a God. I remember now. That's not the kind of remembering he's talking about. Here, to remember God, especially in times of your distress, is to contemplate what you know about God, wrestle with what you know about God, and strive to draw out the implications of what you know about God to your current circumstances. And then he goes on, when I meditate, my spirits faint. Your translation might say, when I muse. This here is describing intense, prolonged meditation. He is fixating on who God is and what he has done until his circumstances are seen in the light of God's love and God's strength. This is what gives him life-giving hope even in the midst of his despair. He seeks the Lord through prayer and meditation with passion and perseverance. And I believe this psalm also encourages us to make sure we seek the Lord with passion and perseverance in community, not by yourself, not isolated, not on your own. Right under, at the very top of the psalm, right under where it says Psalm 77, it says this. It says, to the choir master. In the Hebrew Bible, this is verse 1. That means that this psalm was written for the congregation. I'm telling you, it's fine and it's good to sing and read and pray the psalms on your own, but the ultimate reason for the psalms is to use them in the community of faith with others, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God does not want you to have to go through your despair alone. And here's what I see so often. So many people, including me, there's a temptation. When you are in deep despair, the temptation is strong to isolate yourself, to pull back, to hide. Have you been there? And those are the times when you need community the most. God designed you to grow in community. He designed designed you to find healing in community. He designed you to find life in community, to lean into community. 
I've got to tell you, I am, I am so incredibly thankful for our church family. People here who are true friends, who truly care and love with the love of Christ. And that's one of the benefits of being part of, our crowded, of a crowded house, our home groups that meet throughout the week. One of the benefits of our smaller groups called DNA groups. And, and here's what I know. There are people in our congregation today who are struggling deeply with despair. I'm not saying like they're a little sad. I mean hopelessness. But they keep showing up to meet with their crowded house or their DNA group. And they're not stuffing or stewing or separating themselves. They express their despair and their group doesn't judge them or reduce them to some project that they got to fix. The groups, the groups weep with those who weep. They embrace them. They remind them of who God is, the love that he has for them, and the covenant God has made to deliver them and make all things new. That's Christian community. And that's what we need the most in the midst of our hopelessness in the midst of our despair. So that's first. Seek the Lord with passion and persistence in prayer and, and, and meditation in community. Second, if you're taking notes, declare your despair in prayer. I didn't mean for that to rhyme necessarily, but if it helps, good enough. Declare your despair in prayer. In other words, be honest with God about it. Asaf's prayer here, did you, did you sense how raw his prayer is? It is just raw. He says to God, I cried out to you for help and you did nothing. You did nothing. I reached out and you gave me no comfort. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open, meaning, in other words, I'm exhausted and you won't even let me sleep. I meditated. I grew weaker. He goes on to say, I am so troubled I cannot speak. In a sense, he is saying, where are you, God, when I need you? I want you to know that God invites you to pray like that. That it's okay to pray like that. And how do I know? Well, he had these psalms written to be used as a guide in our communication with him. He wants you to be open and honest about where you are. There's an author named Philip Yancey who wrote an article in the Christian Times. And, and, and the name of the article is called Grappling with God. And in the article, he says this. The church I attend reserves a brief time in which people in the pews can voice aloud their prayers. Over the years, I've heard hundreds of these prayers, and with very few exceptions, the word polite applies. One, however, stands out in my memory because of its raw emotion. In a clear and wavering voice, a young woman began with the words, God, I hated you after the rape. How could you let this happen to me? The congregation abruptly fell silent, no more rustling of papers or shifting in seats. 
And she continues, I, and I hated the people in this church who tried to comfort me. I didn't want comfort. I wanted revenge. I wanted to hurt back. I thank you, God, that you didn't give up on me, and neither did some of these people. You kept after me, and I come back to you now and ask that you heal the scars in my soul. God invites you to pray like that. And he invites honesty, including honesty with your doubts. I've seen so often in Christian culture, if you express any kind of doubt, you get shut down or shunned or shamed. It's ridiculous. Asaph asks a string of questions, revealing his deepest doubts and, and his worst fears. I mean, listen to the rawness here. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now here's the deal. One of the greatest benefits of declaring our despair in prayer is that God, by his grace, uh, gives, exposes the delusion in our perspective. Asaf comes to a place of doubting God's love. He knows that God could have prevented all of this, whatever it is that happened. He could, he, God could stop it at any time, but God's not doing anything. And so he starts to doubt God's love. But praying like this is, helps him see what we see here in his, in his psalm. When he prays like that, it helps him see the contradiction in his perspective. It, it, it sounds, if he starts to see it uh, when he says, you know, in verse 8, has his steadfast or unfailing love forever ceased? He remembers that the Bible promises that God's love for his people is unfailing because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God, and it depends on his commitment to us, and therefore, God's love is unfailing. It cannot cease, let alone cease forever. That right here seems to be his turning point, especially when you see what he says next. And that brings us to our next point. Remember God's deeds. This right here is the turning point. Asaph raises some hard questions, right? But then we see him find what he's looking for. He goes on to say, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people with your arm you redeemed your people. The answer to his doubts and to his fears and to his questions are found in the deeds of the Lord, what God has done for his people. 
I'm telling you, this is not just some lame theory, spiritual-sounding theory. I'm telling you, there are people I see, when they show up, they're here, they are weary, and they start singing about who God is and praising him for his grace and the deliverance and the salvation. I see relief wash over them. And I see people who are crushed by their circumstances be lifted up in worship of God by remembering the deeds of the Lord. And the the whole point is, It all depends on God. It doesn't depend on you, thank God, because we're in despair. We're too weak to do anything. Now, what is God's great deed for his people in the Old Testament that this psalmist is remembering? It's the Exodus. And he begins to meditate on the crossing of the Red Sea. He says, your way through the sea was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock. He remembers when God's people were trapped between the Red Sea and and the Egyptian army who was chasing them down to slaughter them, and they fall into complete despair. They know that they're about to be slaughtered, and, and, and they did not say... God, we just saw you deliver us from slavery by bringing the Egyptians to their knees through the plagues. Well, we can use another one. Bring it, God. Amen. They don't say that. Instead, they fall into ungodly despair. It's all over. We should have stayed as slaves in Egypt rather than die in the desert. Now Moses is their leader, the leader of God's people who forget God's deeds, people who are now rebelling. But Moses remains calm, cool, and collected. And Moses says to the people, it says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Moses raises the staff, God divides the water, God's people are led through on dry ground. The Egyptian army go in after them, but the angel of God, an unseen warrior, rises up, holds them back from making it to the other side. Once all of God's people were safe and arrived on the other side, the waters come rushing back into place, and none of the Egyptian army survives. It was a great deliverance. That is what the psalmist remembers, and that's why at the end of his psalm, you could see his whole tone change. He starts praising God for his deeds. So, is that what we're supposed to remember, the Exodus? Well, sure, but because the Exodus points us to what we are to primarily remember, I'll show you. There's actually something kind of weird in this text here, uh, uh, and it's kind of confusing at first. The, the Israelites, in Exodus, the Israelites, they forget God's de- deeds and fear is driving the rebellion, and they complain, and they blame Moses and totally leave God out of the question. It is ungodly despair. Moses, on the other hand, he's doing everything right. He doesn't complain to God. He doesn't blame God. He's full of courage because he trusts God. So then why does God go on 
to rebuke Moses and say, why are you crying out to me? That seems a little off, doesn't it? Why does Moses get blamed for what the people are doing? Because Moses is their representative. Moses is their mediator. And this is seen in other Exodus passages as well. Later, God's people rebel again. God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, Lord, please forgive their sin, but if not, blot my name out of your book. He says, please punish me so they can live. He's their mediator. And Luke 24 teaches us that Moses is pointing to the greater mediator, the true mediator, who lived his whole life perfectly, who never fell into ungodly despair. But on the cross, God pours out the floodwaters of judgment on him. And Jesus, our true mediator, was treated as if he had done all the things that we have done. So what's that mean for you? What that means for you is that at the moment that you put your trust in Jesus as your mediator, all of your sin is forgiven, including ungodly despair. And then on top of that, you know what God does? He gives you credit for Jesus' godly despair and all of Jesus' perfect righteousness. And on top of that, he gives you his acceptance. And on top of that, he gives you his love. And on top of that, he looks at you even on your worst day, in your worst moment. And he looks at you with the same love and affection that he has for his son, Jesus. That is the good news. It's all because Jesus is your mediator. Some people preach the gospel like it's just for people who don't believe yet, and then once you believe, it's all up to you to apply biblical principles and, and all of that so you can, by your own will, be a good little boy or good little girl, you know. But instead, the way you are saved is the way that you grow. It's through the gospel. Gospel not only saves you, it changes you. To the extent that you believe that Jesus is your mediator, that you meditate on that and apply it to your heart and your life and live a life of repentance and, and faith, to the extent that you do that, you will change. And you'll become more and more like Jesus. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. So we can move forward with confidence. So often what you hear from Christians is, is the leverage of guilt trying to leverage shame so that you would start being good or stop being bad. But that only lasts so long. Only the gospel can permanently transform your heart. Lastly, here's the application. As you remember God's deeds in the gospel, as you do that, you won't beat yourself up because of your despair. Now, this is a real temptation for me personally. And I, when I fall into that temptation, I just make things way worse. And I start thinking, you know what? I should be a better person, a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better leader, a better son of God, a better representative of the kingdom or whatever. Have you ever had those kind of thoughts? 
and thinking beating yourself up might motivate you to do whatever it is that you're supposed to do just makes things worse. Well, here's the good news. The more you trust Jesus as your mediator, you will be able to say with unwavering confidence, I'm actually a worse person than I thought. You can face it. We try to be in denial about how bad uh, we are. Because it usually ends with the bad news. You can confidently say I'm actually a worse person than I thought. But I have a mediator who processed despair perfectly for me. And he, and he died for my ungodly despair. And so now when God looks at me, he treats me like Jesus because Jesus' cross brings me total forgiveness. <laughs> That's what we want in a good relationship, right? Where somebody else could know every dark secret about you and say, I still love you. <laughs> God loves us because of Christ's payment on the cross. You can be, you don't have to front, you don't have to hide, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to be a poser. You could be down to earth, open, honest, who you are to God because he sees you as his beloved son or daughter because of Jesus. We can make ungodly despair more ungodly by beating ourselves up. Godly despair leads you to Jesus, your mediator. Second way you'll change is you will grow in freedom from despair. And in the times that you fall into despair and you are tempted to stuff it or stew it, you won't fall as deep and you won't stay as long. That, that's, that's kind of a picture of Christian growth. Progressively, when you fall unbelief or sin, you don't fall as deep and you don't stay as, as long. And, and what you do is you start turning to your mediator sooner and sooner and sooner. You don't hide from him. And the last way that you'll change, even in despair, if you remember God's good deeds and the good news of the gospel, even in despair, you will have hope. It's counterintuitive, but the more you remember God's deeds in the gospel, you will be able to, to pray Psalm 42 and 43. In those two chapters, there's this common chorus that says, Why, O downcast, O my soul, why does so disturbed within me? Put your trust in God, for I will again praise him. So what that means is that in the depths of, we see that right there, in the depths of despair, the psalmist remembers that God is faithful and that God will bring him through and God will he, enable him to again praise the Lord. God promised he would save his people and he did and he still is. God promised he would spend, we would spend eternity with him and so we will. That is the hope of Jesus' resurrection and glorification. And if you are in Christ, you have that hope of resurrection and glorification when all things will be made right. I, I want to I close with this, all right? Um, It's a, it's a testimony um, about a woman named Sandy, and this was actually written by Sandy's friend. It takes a couple minutes, 
but I think it uh, helps us understand what this looks like in real life. The author says Sandy was raised in the church. Her father was a pastor. She graduated from a Christian college, became a, a pediatric nurse, and married a Christian young man. Four years later, two months into her first uh, uh, pregnant with her first child, her husband tells her he feels trapped and isn't sure he's ready for this. Two more months go by, and she becomes very ill. While staying with her sister, her husband leaves her. She keeps praying for her husband, just certain he's going to return like the prodigal son. But she soon finds out that her husband had been unfaithful and that he contracted a sexually transmitted disease. When her baby girl Rachel was born, her father's one gift to her was the disease that he passed on. After delivery, when a baby's supposed to be crying, this baby girl was silent. Instead of pink and, and wiggling, this baby was blue and limp. Rachel was born anencephalic, which means she only has a brain stem, no brain to carry on the most basic functions. The doctor said Rachel would live maybe days or weeks, but the weeks became months and the months became years. Sandy's whole life consisted of working 12 hours a day while her sister or friend watched Rachel and then coming home and caring for her daughter the rest of the night. The author asks, what kind of hopes could she cling to? They're not the same hopes most parents have, not anymore. Hopes like watching uh, Rachel toddling off to her first day of school. There would be no, more, or no report cards, no homemade valentines, no baking cookies together, no taking her for a first driver's license test, no walk down the aisle. Sandy did not have the hope of ever seeing her daughter take her first step or feel those chubby little fingers wrapped around her hand or hear her laugh or say the phrase, I love you, or even the syllables, mommy. Sandy would never even tell if Rachel knew who her mother was. The only time Rachel seemed to respond to anything at all was during her baths. Sandy would wash her and rub her back and Rachel would give a low cooing sound like she was content. Sandy decided she was going to take a vacation, and it would be her first in three years of three years of Rachel's life. When she was on vacation, she'd call home every day to talk to her sister. And one day, Sandy's sister held the phone up to Rachel's ear while Sandy talked into the phone. And then her sister grabbed the phone back and said that when Rachel heard Sandy's voice, she started to give that low cooing sound. It's the only indication Sandy ever had that maybe her daughter knew who her mother was. When she landed at the airport at the end of her vacation, her brother-in-law met her with the words that Sandy somehow knew he would say, which was that Rachel had died while she was gone. Rachel's father never came to the funeral, never asked about his daughter, never said, I'm sorry, it wasn't until six years later that Sandy could even bring herself to read the journals she kept during Rachel's life, mostly asking why. If you were to ask Sandy what sustained her through this, she will tell you that it was not optimism about medical progress or the way things might turn out physically or what doctors might be able to do. It was optimism. 
Christian hope. And what is Christian hope? Christian hope says that flawed DNA will not be allowed to have the last word, not in God's universe. Christian hope says that one day Sandy and Rachel will be seated at a table where they will know each other and be fully known. Christian hope says that one day around that table, the words of wonder and gratitude and affection and love, which Rachel could not speak here, will flow ceaselessly there. Christian hope says that the limbs that hung limp and useless in this world will one day define grace and beauty in the next one. Christian hope says the mind that was cheated her will one day flourish in endless creativity and sparkling intelligence. Christian hope says that the one who does reconstructive surgery on his children is not finished yet. The day will come when a short-lived, little-noticed, obscured, damaged child in this world will dazzle through all the ages with a glory that we cannot now imagine or comprehend. Christian hope says it's just a matter of time. He promises to make all things new. That is the hope of the gospel. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Until then, we will have times when our prayers leave our mouths like groaning and miserable pain. Paul tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right on target. And the Bible also says that you have a mediator, Jesus, who stands at the right hand of God, always interceding for you always praying for you. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are praying to God the Father for you. We need to remind each other of that. We need to remind each other that God will bring us through and renew all things. And even in the depths of despair, there is hope because it doesn't depend on you and me. Thank God. It depends on your mediator. He'll see to it that you will again praise him because of the cross and resurrection of a perfect mediator who renews all things. It all depends on him, and he will do it. Amen? Amen. 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 Would you please bow your heads with me?